Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm, and this is our Wednesday show, where we niche down to a single topic and go deep. Today, we are talking to Henry Ward, the CEO and co-founder of Carta. On the show today, the state of the early stage markets, why Carta wants to make fundraising cheaper, and then a look ahead to the rest of the year from a startup and venture perspective. Now, if you don't know what is Carta, well, Carta is a startup and unicorn that helps other startups and venture capitalists manage cap tables, execute 409A valuations, and allows employees to keep track of their vesting schedules and purchase their options. I know that because I've actually used it as a startup employee. And the company has also built Carta X, which facilitates secondary transactions for private startup shares. And the company was last valued at a post-money valuation of around $7.4 billion after raising $500 million back in mid-2021. Henry, welcome to the show. Hey, Alex. Great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And you win the Did My Homework For Me Award because I was talking to your team about what I wanted to talk about on the show. And I'm like, look, we're going to riff on the early stage. And you guys sent over an actual deck of data. And that is a first, I think, in the history of equity in terms of helping me do my job. So from a really high level, starting up in the stratosphere, what is your take on the current health of the early stage venture capital market as it exists today? Yeah, it's a lot healthier than I think people think. It doesn't feel healthy, you know, because if you compare it to 2021 and kind of the frenzy of that period, you know, we were averaging something around 800 seed deals a quarter, you know, 500, 600 Series A deals a quarter in 2021. And we're probably around half that now in both seed deals and Series A deals starting 2023 and Q1, Q2. But if you compare that to like 2019, 2020, we're doing great. Like it's as good right. as it's ever been. And you remember back then in 2019, 18, we're like, this is the hottest, most amazing market, the best time ever to be an entrepreneur, you know, et cetera. Yeah. So if you just took out that manic frenzy of 2021 and early 22, like this is still the most incredible time ever to be an entrepreneur. It's just the watermark got set way too high. So everybody benchmarks to the wrong year. Yeah. So I did the math on the data you sent over and the average number of seed rounds that Carta saw in 2021 was 780 a quarter. That fell to 652 in 2022. And then you saw 407 seed deals in the first quarter of, of this year. On the Series A front, it was 706 Series A's per quarter in 21, 540 in 22, and then 335 in the first quarter of this year. Now, you're right that we are back to where we were before the COVID pandemic and the last period of zero interest rates. But the thing that I'm thinking about is a lot of companies were founded and funded at the pre-seed and seed level. And so as we see the series A's and larger seed rounds kind of come back to what was the norm, it feels like a lot of companies are going to be kind of stuck or jammed, unable to advance. And I'm curious if you guys are starting to see, and politely, uh, some companies not make it. Well, I think you're right. I think what's happening is mid-stage and growth is completely dead right now. Yeah. And there's some like micro-mechanic reasons for that and then some macro reasons. So obviously, there's been a price compression reset in the public market that's trickled in. And so that's been one issue. The other issue is obviously when you get into like Series B, Series C, D, anti-dilution provisions matter now. It's much harder to reset a late stage round, a price in a late stage round than it is early stage. And that's why the early stage market has been much faster to respond in valuation prices than later stage markets, where later stage just kind of freezes because it, it can't reset because of anti-dilution ratchets. Yeah. But early stage can because it doesn't have the anti-dilution ratchets in there. And so what you're seeing is that kind of 
confluence of repricing in the public market slowly creeping down, anti-dilution ratchets preventing repricing. And then all of them, the gross money is moving into early stage because that's where they're seeing the growth happening. And so that's where all the money's flowing. <laughs> yeah. So that brings me to the next question that I had, which was valuations, because you also shared some data on what you guys are seeing in the first quarter of 2023 when it comes to seed and Series A valuations compared to prior historical periods. And if you think about it, I think the seed deals are back to kind of where they were in 21 and the A deals are back to where they were in 2020. But it doesn't feel like we've reset back to the same place we might have expected, given that volume is back down to more like 2019 levels. Things still feel expensive to me. So my question is, are we just seeing the best startups raise money at the seed and series A level. And that's why it looks like valuations are recovering, but really it's just for a cohort of startups that would have always done well, no matter what happened in the macro world. I think quality is higher for sure. But I also think that what is different now is that people are seeing, even with multiple compression, people are seeing that the runway for these companies, the TAM is so much bigger than it used to be, right? The yeah. number of customers that you can get to if you're a B2B company, the number of users you can get to if you're a B2C company is so much bigger than it was, you know, five, 10 years ago. Sure. So I think there has been a structural reset on the TAM for all software. And that's being reflected in these early stage valuations. And that was part of the key argument that I heard from a lot of smart folks when things were, let's say, a little bit overheated, that, look, these companies have such a longer growth path ahead of them that the discounted value of their future cash flows, blah, 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 is much larger than expected. So therefore, these valuations can be supported. But then growth did slow down enough that it seemed like that optimistic argument was maybe premature. But it sounds like you actually think that that argument was correct, even if people were perhaps overbidding for that equity anyways. Well, I, I think the harder argument is what's the growth at scale? So mm. when you're when you're very early, you know, they're just saying, you know, is it a pre-money at 30 million or, or 40 million for a series A? You know, ah, that's not too big a deal. When you're at, is it a pre-money at a billion or 1.5, you know, is it 20X or 50X ARR? Like those calculations, I think are harder and the market's having a much harder time wrapping their head around. Like there is a big difference at scale, if you're at 20% growth or 40% growth. Oh, yeah. And those are harder things to calculate the early stage. So it is frothier. Like they can take bigger bets in the early stage that they can't do in the, the late stage. The late stage companies, you know, Carta included, right? The pencils are much sharper on valuation, right? When investors look at us, for example, to value us, like they do a deep dive into not just our growth rate, which all they cared about before was they looked at our ARR and our growth rate. Right. And that's it. And now they're looking at an NDR, looking at a margin profile, right? They're looking at forecasts, like everything is getting unpacked. Okay, politely though, I'm just a nerd with a keyboard. And whenever I get my hands on like a financial document, I'm looking at NDR and gross margins and stuff. Did VCs just decide for a while that they didn't have to do homework? Because it's not like you're mentioning exotic, you know, bits of financial arcana. Like to me, that's still kind of the basics. <laughs> I think when we went through this sort of, you know, the last decade of zero interest rates and kind of boom times, the big, I don't know if you call it a mistake or just a delusion or how you describe it, but what happened was all revenue and growth was considered equal. Uh, yeah. And so you looked at business models all the same, you know, whether it was a contractual revenue ARR business with NDR, you know, 20, 30% NDR, they looked at that same as like a transactional business processing credit cards you know, as same as like a liquidity marketplace business, all revenues counted the same. Nobody differentiated that. 
And that was a big problem. You saw transactional businesses with low gross margins trading on revenue multiples the same as high gross margin SaaS contractional revenue businesses, which makes no sense at scale. But at InVenture, all of these things came together. And then when the market recorrected, what you could see was people were trying to figure all this stuff out. Yeah. Like, how should I value different types of revenue? Nobody knew. And so they, they punished everybody. And I think what we're seeing now is there is kind of a recalibration right? Like Snowflake is now trading at different multiples, you know, than transactional businesses. For sure. You're starting to see that happen, but it will take time to unwind. Yeah. I think also people like to conflate annual run rate with annual recurring revenue. They both equate to ARR. Sharing an acronym does not make them the same substance. And I think that, you know, high margin recurring software revenue, you know, sold to the enterprise that has positive NDR is a unique thing. And everyone wants to claim they have it. And I think it's up to us to kind of call bullshit when people want to scoot more stuff into that bucket than is reasonable. And I think we saw a lot of the correction you're referring to on the public markets with companies like Impolitely, but like Allbirds and Rent the Runway and, you know, really cool tech-enabled businesses that were just misvalued and have suffered, I think, more than they needed to just because they were kind of talking a different book than they were actually writing. You know, it's tough. I, I as an angel investor, saw so many deals from entrepreneurs, from founders that in their deck... We're like, we're at 10 million ARR. And I said, well, but you sell widgets. How is that ARR? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, revenue run rate. Right. You know, I think in any other world, that would be considered fraud. Uh, <laughs> but but in, in this world, it was like, oh, you know, it's all the same. It's revenue. I will yeah. always grant the earliest stage startups some breathing room around their metrics and numbers. Because if you only have a couple of customers, you could pretty much chart it, I think, any way you want to. But like, what's your like a series B or something? Like, you really got to have all this locked down. Closing the book a little bit on the macro picture, I want to pivot and talk a little bit more about what Carta is doing to help juice those numbers. But before we do that, a very short break. Okay, I want to go back to the early stage market in general, though, because I have a question about Carta. You guys do a lot of stuff now. You know, back when it was eShares and you guys rebranded to Carta, you guys were focused on cap table management. Certainly now the business is much broader. But I, I'm curious about how much you guys are impacted by the venture slowdown because things have gotten slower. And I, is that harming Carta's growth itself? Or are you guys actually managed to kind of separate from the macro trends on the sector that you often serve? That's, you know, we're at scale. So we're, you know, 300 plus million in ARR. We'll grow about 30% this year. Yeah. So not terrible. You know, we'd like to grow faster. Yeah. 40, 50% like we used to, but better than I think we thought we would. So we're, we're more protected than we, we thought. And I think it's because two reasons. One is venture is doing better than I think most people think on the outside. Yes. Like I, like the data says, it's not 2021, but it's 2019 levels, which was a pretty good year for us. Then two, I think we're mission critical software. I think the companies that are, at least in B2B SaaS, the companies that are really hurting are the nice to have yes. software. And fortunately, we talk a lot about vitamins versus painkillers. We build painkillers. And so we're, we're one of the last things that CFOs decide that they don't need. Well, that's because you guys nest, I think, in kind of like the spinal column of a company as it grows. I can't even imagine extracting Carta once you already have like all your employees have their options vesting on there and so forth. Like to me, once you guys you know, start to work with an earlier stage company, I presume they're with you kind of for life. It's almost like you're kind of conjoined at the hips. 
We like to think so. We, we definitely feel like we're the partner from formation of a company through the life cycle of the company, whether it's, you know, IPO, M&A, whatever the company ends up doing at Exit. And then along that journey, you know, we have a lot of products that we support along the way, you know, whether it's total compensation, you know, helping them figure out how much to pay people, whether it's equity advice for employees, whether it's deal concierge, like we have a lot of stuff we do along the life cycle of the company. So we definitely feel like our job is to be a partner to the founder throughout the, the whole life cycle of the company. I want to go back a little bit because I just realized something. You mentioned how, how big the company is, 300 million ARR plus, and you're going to go by 30% this year. I've never heard someone talk down so much to the fact that they're going to add like 100 million ARR this year. Like well, growing 30% at that scale, is that's a significant amount of growth. You can give yourself like, I think, two backpats, maybe. Maybe two and a half. I mean, come on, Henry, talk it up a little bit. That's impressive. I'm proud of you. Uh, well, well, thanks, Alex. That's super kind. We're trying really hard. We're working hard. I think, you know, revenue is is a lagging indicator. The most important thing that we look at, it's like, hey, are we doing good things for our customers? We often talk about sort of like there's two parts of the business. One is the value we create and then the value we capture. Yes. And so the value we capture is measured in revenue dollars and the value we create is really the customer loyalty that we get. And so the value we capture is always the lagging indicator. And so the question is like, how do you measure the, the value we create for customers? And that's really the North Star for us. Yeah. And so I often think a lot about this conversation in terms of like surplus. Google, for example, for the longest time had an enormous consumer surplus because they provided a service that was just amazing and they took some value off the side. And then it seemed over time as that company kind of got bigger and scaled, the consumer surplus was crunched as Google needed to extract more for itself with more ads and worse UI and so forth. How do you guys like test that? How do you know if you're keeping true to your target level of customer surplus as you've grown and scaled and added more products? Yeah, it's such a great question, Alex. You know, one of the perennial problems of all tech companies is aging. I feel like tech companies are the same problems as celebrities and athletes, right? It's aging catches up to all of us. So how do we prevent aging from killing us? And it's constantly about innovating and rebuilding the company and killing what we have and being creative again. And we do that through talking to customers, figuring out what they're unhappy about, killing our babies, you know, doing new things for them, launching new products, failing a lot. Yeah. So we, we've launched a lot of products that didn't work doubling down on the things that do. And so the hard part, of course, is the KPIs that track it. Yeah. And almost always it's some form of engagement and happiness, right? So are people using our products, right? And we have a lot of ways to track how much they're using it. And then two, do they love it? Right. So when they use it, do they walk away feeling like, I'm so glad I have Carta, right? If I didn't have Carta, I wouldn't be able to get my job done. And those are really the two things that we track. And if those two things are consistently, you know, going up and to the right, the revenue and everything else follows. And if those things are going down, like we're in a lot of trouble. Okay. So the market is slowing down a little bit, not as bad as people think. You guys want to ensure there's a lot of customer surplus in there as you build out new products. This brings me to the thing that I was talking to your team about, which is deal concierge. Essentially, you guys are working with companies raising seed or series A rounds and then helping them close that for a fixed fee of 15K or 25K when you guys also wrote that it's usually like fifty dollars to $75,000 to close one of these rounds. A lot of questions here, but the first one is, why has it gotten so expensive to raise an early stage round? Because I think about safes and other kind of standardized contracts that to me should make this all simpler, faster, easier, cheaper. But you guys wrote that it's actually getting more expensive. So starting there, why is it more expensive to raise an early stage round? Yeah. So what happened? So when I think of equity rounds, I think priced seed rounds, so not convertibles, okay. which are safe rounds, right? So priced equity seed rounds were expensive because you needed lawyers to do them. Mm-hmm. So what happened was founders to avoid, you know, getting lawyers involved, they would do convertible notes or safes and they try to standardize on safes. So you could raise, you know, 
100K at a time, you know, to raise a few hundred thousand bucks to get going before yeah. they invested in, in a seed round. So over time, legal fees inflated considerably, right, over the last 10 years. Like it used to be, it used to be a seed round was $20,000 or $15,000. And people thought that was crazy. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Oh. My Series B round in 2016 was 25000 bucks, <laughs> And I... I was appalled. Okay. I raised $17 million and paid $25,000 in legal fees and couldn't believe it. And so today, the legal fees have tripled in the last eight years. There's just been massive inflation in legal fees. And so what's happened is the safes have gone crazy because nobody wants to pay the seed legal fees. And the problem is that seed rounds are much better for companies and founders, right? Because safes are basically a, a seed round, but with a ratchet. It's a full ratchet, right? It's basically debt. So if you get a down round, it punishes the common. Yes. You are actually much better off doing an equity round where the equity holders share in any downside along with you. But because founders don't want to pay the legal fees, they're just increasing the ratchet on these safes. So they really should do a seed round, but the costs are becoming very prohibitive. So I knew this back in 2016 when I saw the Series B. And the big problem in this $25,000 thing that I saw was $20,000 of it was actually just administrative. It was like creating the spreadsheet for the pro forma, tracking the wires for the money, you know, getting the signatures done, creating the closing volume. $5,000 of it was actually my lawyer doing legal work. Got it. Like very little of it was legal work. Most of it was just paperwork, administrative stuff. And so I had this idea way back in 2016, but we just never kind of got around to it. We got too busy with other things. Yeah. And so I was at dinner the other day with some lawyers. This was six months ago. And I was just talking to them and they told me, you know, hey, you know, these seed deals are really expensive now. They cost us $100,000 to do. And we have to write off twenty five to fifty thousand of it. So we lose money on it. And then the founders are furious because they have to pay fifty to seventy five K for it. Nobody wins. Right. Everyone's unhappy at once. It's negative surplus all around. It's a deficit. It's a consumer deficit. Customer deficit. Totally. Yeah. Consumer deficit. Everybody loses on this. And it's all because it's manual. And it's all because the only people that are doing it charge two thousand dollars an hour that can do it. And I was like, okay. We can help. Now's the time. This idea I had in 2016 to automate this stuff, now's the time. Like, let's fix it. And this brings me to what I wanted to ask, though, which is how much of this is automated? And are you guys going to essentially take a loss on this? Because I can see the logic on politely subsidizing a seed or a series A round being completed on the Carta platform. Because as we discussed, if I do my first or couple rounds with you guys as my kind of backend data source, I'm going to stay. So is this um, a gross margin positive thing for you guys? Yeah, totally. So we built the whole thing. Nice. There's three parts of closing a round. Part one, you do the spreadsheet math, the pro forma spreadsheet. That's all automated now. You just type in your investors, click the button and download it. And there you go. You got the spreadsheet. You don't need to pay a, an associate a thousand bucks an hour to kind of hand craft a pro forma. Yeah. Part two is the docs. That part we don't do. You need your lawyer to do that part. But that's actually the easy part. We have template docs. The lawyer just has to tweak it. Seed rounds. You know, we don't do like series E, right? That's complex. Yes. But seed rounds are cookie cutter. Got right? They, they don't need a lot of stuff. So the lawyer will do the docs. And then part three, and this is actually the most time consuming part, is the closing. You've got to get the signatures. You've got to confirm the wires. You got to do the stockholder agreements. You got to package this all together. You got to issue all the docs. All of that's now automated on Carta. It's the same way that we do stock purchase agreements when we issue securities. Right. So that's all automated. So all this stuff, 90% of it's automated. And then the lawyer does their piece. So we do all the automation stuff. So this is a super software automated product for us. 
I like this because you're taking a process that is heavily manual and inefficient and you're essentially just applying software to it, which is like the single most common startup story I've ever heard. And to me, it's kind of ironic that you're doing this to actually help other startups do startupy things. It's very full circle in a way and appropriate. And if I recall, Henry, you guys were going to work with, I think like 10 companies to kind of try this out. Announced it a couple of weeks back. I'm, I'm curious, how has it gone so far? Yeah, so we've got eight companies going through the process right now. The market reaction has been really positive. Founders love this idea. They're very excited about it. So we're getting a ton of inbound. Uh, so we're sorting through, you know, who the pilot customers are. The law firms are really excited about it. I should say the tech forward ones. I mean, there's definitely, there's an early adopter and late adopter curve on law firms like everything else. And so the best law firms all want to be tech forward and kind of move forward. And then you'll have the lagging law firms that will sort of be late adopters. And so yeah. the best law firms are starting to, to bring clients on as well. And so we're starting to work with them, which is fantastic. I'm pretty sure the legal firms that are on the later stage of adoption of all things are probably still having like thatched roofs and like horses and buggies because that's a profession that doesn't, famously move too fast with the times. It's a broad group. Yes. What's really interesting is you've got some great law firms that are very tech forward that were quick to adopt things like DocuSign and Box, you know, which sounds crazy, but like the electronic documents and things <laughs> like that. And they were quick to drop cap table. They were quick to drop e-shares. You know, there were yeah. some law firms that were really early on cap table software and, you know, were very innovative. And there were law firms that weren't. And, and the same thing will happen here is, is we know who all the great tech forward law firms are. They'll adopt it first and the late adopters will come. And yeah, and I agree. There's some law firms that are stuck in the old ways. I also think what's happening is there is a generational shift that's happening in law firms. The next generation of GPs that went to law school, you know, post-internet have a different view of the world too. Yes. Now, from a Carta perspective, I'm curious, is this going to let you guys, presuming that the tests go well, everyone's happy, it works, everything goes according to plan. Is Deal Concierge effectively a way for you guys to kind of grow your market share inside the world of startups? I think it's a way for us to help lower the cost of starting companies. So for us, the biggest risk is the world doesn't create enough entrepreneurs. Like we have this view of the world. The risk of Carta is there's just not enough startups. Right. Right. The criticism of eShares in the early days is how big is the TAM for CapTable software? You know, how many startups? Exactly. Huge. Right. There's yeah. just not enough startups in the world. So for us, the critical limit is the number of entrepreneurs that exist. And you know, in the United States, we're really good at creating accountants and lawyers and doctors, but we're not great at creating entrepreneurs. And so the single biggest thing that we can do to help our chances of growing is to create a world where we can create more entrepreneurs. And we do a lot of things. Like we do things in policy, we do things in education. Yeah. You know, we do a lot of things to help foster more entrepreneur creation in the United States. And this is one way of doing that, which is if we can lower the cost of creating companies, we can create more entrepreneurs and increase the chance of success for startups. I was hoping you were going to say that last bit about helping people create companies, because as we've been talking, the same kind of note keeps playing in my head, which is Stripe is doing some of this. Oddly enough, like Stripe has, it's called Stripe Atlas, right? Their incorporation program to help people launch companies. Does that compete with Carta or are you guys just kind of going in the same direction? No, it was super complimentary. So we're a big Atlas partner. So all of the Atlas incorporations, the first thing you do when you go to Atlas is you click incorporate. Atlas incorporates you. And the second thing you do is click get on a cap table and then you get on Carta's cap table. Okay. So that's our funnel with Atlas. No, I dig that because one thing you can't solve as a company is the fact that in America, healthcare is tied to employment. That's not your responsibility to fix. I think that would be the single biggest unlock 
for entrepreneurship in this country, period. But if you can smooth out the other bumps, more people have found companies, a more vital economy, and it doesn't hurt that Cardi will be right there along to help you as you grow in your journey. But we think about, we, I mean, the equity team, thinks about Cardi from a very decidedly startup and venture perspective because that's what we do. But it sounds like you're saying really that you want to foster a, a broader pool of entrepreneurship. So does Carta and its competitors, are they set up to help with businesses that don't really fit a venture portrait or like a setup? Yeah, so our focus has been, you know, since 2014, since we launched really in the venture ecosystem. A couple of years ago, we launched a product called LLC. So our cap table product is specifically focused for C-Corps, which is a venture instrument. Yes. You know, everybody incorporates in Delaware with a C-Corp. But the vast majority of companies in the United States are LLC structures, limited liability corporations. So our LLC product is designed specifically to support the limited liability corporation capital structure. And it's a newer business for us. We have about 30,000 startups oh. on, on Carta. We only have about 3,000 LLCs. So it's nascent. It's only a couple of years old, but it's starting to take off. It's really interesting. We're getting all kinds of different companies on the platform from, you know, private equity to managed service organizations to professional, you know, consultancies to mom and pop shops. It's, it's fascinating to see the types of companies that are coming on. And that's our next big bet is, you know, can we bring our capital structure software outside of venture? Ladies and gentlemen, if you ever host your own podcast interview and you make the facial expression that I did when uh, Henry brought up LLCs, it's a fault in your pre-show research because I did not know about the LLC product. And I thought that I had gone through like your entire corporate history to be prepared for this. Damn it. Just because we're a little bit short on time, I want to look ahead to the rest of the year. I think you and I share a perspective that things are definitely down from before, but not as bad as they were in the world of venture capital and fundraising. What do you see in the back half of 2023? You know, I'm uh, very bullish. You know, I think there'll be a lot of pain. I, I think especially for late stage companies like mine, like Carta and other, you know, companies that raised big dollars at big valuations in 2021, we're going to go through a tough period and, and that's okay. And we'll, we'll go through it. And that's part of the process. But at a macro level, I've never been more bullish on technology and software. I mean, it's just the stuff that's happening. Again, all the, the revenue and the financial stuff, all of that, as I said, are, these are lagging indicators. Right. But when you look at like what's happening in the industry, the activity of what's being built, the energy of entrepreneurship, right, that's happening, the technology that's happening, you just have to look at it and go, wow, this is incredible. Yes. The money and the valuations and all of those things, the financial metrics will follow. So whether it's the back half of this year, or early next year, it will come. I also just think very pragmatically, when we look at our business, it's slower than 2021 for sure, but it's not falling off a cliff. Yeah. Like you said, we'll put a hundred million bucks on the board this year. We're more correlated to venture than anybody else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so if we're putting a hundred million bucks on the board, that's that's not shabby. As the person who runs TechCrunch Plus, I'm in control of a, of a little seven-figure business. And I've never had more respect for SaaS companies that are growing much faster than I am than I have in the last year and a half of my professional life. So congrats to that. This actually brings us to our lightning round. I have three fun questions for you. This is essentially a way that we can abuse our guests and call it fun. So roll with me here, Henry. First up, the impact of generative AI on enterprise software, overblown or going to be huge? Going to be huge. And just because I'm, I'm completely curious, why? We're using it internally. I think the generative AI stuff, 
the first wave is going to be internal apps versus external stuff. I think you're going to see a lot of kind of toy stuff. I'm not saying in a negative way. It's just be like, you'll find like cute things to do and kind of like consumer and stuff like that. But where you're going to see the incredible power is the internal processing of information within the enterprise. Like we've got an open AI license, enterprise license. We're doing incredible stuff inside. I'm doing a CEO event this week, actually, with myself and my CTO with a bunch of other CEOs. We're talking about what we're doing internally, like the speed that this is taking over the enterprise. We have a team specifically working on it. I have a team that all they do is do experiments with generative AI and report to me what they're doing. This stuff is taking over. It's incredible. I'm a huge, I I was very negative on crypto for 10 years and I am huge on this. A segue as if from the gods themselves. Next question for our lightning round is level of surprise regarding the SEC's massive actions on the crypto front this week. Not surprised. You know, we, we have a big policy team, as you know, Alex. I yes, think they've been talking to you as well. I go to DC twice a year and talk to the Hill about regulating the private markets, crypto. They've been slow to react on all this stuff. I even talked to some of the commissioners and I, I said to them, I said, Hey, why do you let my mom buy Bitcoin, but she can't buy Carta stock? Like, that doesn't make sense to me. And they said, you know, privately between us, like, we were just too slow to Bitcoin. Yeah. Like, we should have stopped that stuff. It just happened too quick. We didn't move fast enough. They're too slow. They're getting after it now. So it's going to get worse. Like, they're really angry. I, I'm not surprised at all. I, I actually think it's going to get more aggressive. Oh, boy. If you are a Bitcoin bull or a crypto fan, you can go off and cry in any corner of your choosing now, because we have one more for Henry before we let him go. And this is the critical one. Anyone who's been alive this week, tuned in to Apple's WWDC, I'm not going to call it a keynote. I'm going to call it high production value infomercial. And they announced the Vision Pro, Apple's upcoming AR headset. I want one because I'm an enormous dweeb, but I'm curious, Henry, is that going to go on the uh, the Carta corporate card when it comes out? I haven't even seen it, but my friend told me about it. Uh, and it won't go on the card of corporate card. It'll go on my personal card. I'm definitely buying it sight unseen. Yeah. I'm a dweeb too. Yeah. yeah. I've always really been bullish about AR ever since I wore Microsoft's HoloLens AR headset up in Redmond. And I got to play this little game like the first time they showed it to the public. And it was one of those moments in which you're like, oh, this is so much cooler and better than I thought. Much like ChatGPT was the first time we all got to play with that. And I've just been waiting for it to work, you know? So I'm really hoping that Apple's got this sorted out because I want holographic displays. I don't want to have to type so much. And I do think there's going to be a cool way to use current AI technology inside of there as well. So I'm super bullish about that. Just, it's probably too expensive to start for most folks, but you know, it'll get there. You just feel like if anybody's going to get it right, it's got to be Apple, right? So that's the one you want to bet on. Yeah. And so much for that whole meme about how Tim Cook can't innovate because, well, here we are, you know? (laughs) He's amazing. Henry, I'm going to drag you back on the show late this year, early next year to talk about what we did see in the back half of the year. But in the meantime, thanks for the data. Thanks for talking me through what you're working on. And if folks want to follow you on Twitter or whatever, where can they find you? At Henry S. Ward on Twitter. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Alex. So great to see you. All right, everybody, that is all the time we have for today. A big thanks to Henry for coming on and being such a good sport. Our next show, of course, drops Friday morning with our news roundup. Mary Ann Azevedo will be on and a special guest from the TechCrunch team. Don't forget, of course, you can follow Equity on Twitter, where we tweet under the handle EquityPod. And we are doing our yearly Equity listener survey. And that means we want to hear from you. Yes, you, my dear friend. We want to know what you think we're doing well, what we're not doing so good, and what else you want us to actually do for you. So make your voice heard. Go to Bit slash equity pod survey capital e capital p capital s if you don't capitalize those letters they won't work so you gotta capitalize them do it all right we're back soon bye everybody 
Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. 